Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Thanks for joining me on our third episode and in the middle of a busy week as we share out some great books across the week, helping you discover the diverse world of great Australian writing. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week on Final Draft, broadcasting from the studios of 2SER here in Sydney, I explore books, writing, and literary culture, sharing stories and issues that make our world tick and getting behind the scenes talking to the creators. In Great Conversations, I bring you more from these discussions to help you discover the best in Australian writing right now. I'm joined on this show by Michael Muhammad Ahmed. He's the director of Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers Collective, and we're discussing his novel, The Lebs. Drawing on events in Sydney through the late 90s, through the September 11 attacks and the Cronulla riots, The Lebs explores the experience of being a young Arab man in a country that sees you as a demon. Barney Adam studies at Punchbowl Boys High. In fact, as far as he's concerned, he's just about the only one who studies there. Barney's Lebanese and Lebs rule the school, but he also dreams of becoming a writer, and that's not something his friends are going to understand. Now, I, that, is, that is the story we are talking about today, and I am joined by Michael Muhammad Ahmed. You've met Muhammad before on Final Draft when we discussed his collection, The Tribe which was adapted for the stage. He also, he's also the founder and director of Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers Collective, and we're going to be talking about his latest novel, The Lebs. It has absolutely made my job of presenting engaging and brilliant writing every week on Final Draft just that little bit easier, and I want to thank you, Mohammed, for joining me here in the studio. Thank you for having me, and also let me start by saying assalamu alaikum, which in the language of my ancestors means peace be upon you. I wish you peace and also all the listeners tuning in. And... I am just, look, I'm excited. When I heard about the Lebs, I was really, I, 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 this was, I would say, anticipated. That would be my understatement. I was stunned when I read it, so I'm really excited to kind of get into it with you. Can we start with expectations? Home, school, friends, love. I think everyone listening will relate to the notion that these expectations pull at you, even divide you when you're at school. What Bunny experiences is different, though. He knows that to white people, he has the face of a rapist, and it tears him because he wants to be himself, not a grotesque caricature of being Lebanese. I got the sense, though, that there's no resolution for Bunny. Nothing that our society offers, or or in the Lebs, we're actually going back to the late 90s, there's nothing that society offers that will allow him to be all the things that he wants. Um, Well, I think the story is about Bunny learning to love himself. And so, yeah, there is, you're absolutely right that the society won't let him be all the things that he wants. But to be completely blunt about it, a lot of the things he wants are developed because of his self-hate. And so the things he wants are, to me, as an educated writer who was being conscious in the way I produced the work, the things Banny wants are stupid a lot of the time. And what... Ultimately, he discovers is that being a leb is beautiful. I, I loved Banny, but I had these moments, and I've, I've written the word contradictions here. I've written the word inconsistencies. Throughout school, Banny struggles with these things. He feels like the, the contradictions and inconsistencies between his faith and his friend's behavior. It's later challenged by his work with Bankstown Theatre Company. Each time he's challenged, he's magnanimous enough to question his own understanding and not simply dismiss these challenging views. I really like that. I saw, at first, when I saw him doing this, I was like, 
This is a very ideal mindset. But later on, you also challenged me with the idea, and Banny out, outright states, that he might be doing this out of fear. Is it? Is he being open? Is he fearful? Is it both? Well, firstly, let's set up the context mm. of this um, discussion, and then we'll talk about contradiction. Um, so it's the book is set in the late 90s, um, and it's set in a real place, Punchbowl Boys High School, which is the high school that I went to. Mm. Um, and the, the majority of the students at that school are uh, from Arab-Australian Muslim backgrounds, which I, in the book, call lebs for shorthand, which is a term that we were throwing around interchangeably with things like Middle Eastern, Arab, and Muslim. Now, it just so happens that for any young leb growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney between the years 1998 and 2005, you're going to be a little bit unlucky because that's when the SCAF gang rapes took place in the year 2000, which turned pretty much every Arab-Australian Muslim male into a sexual predator in Australia. Um, and then you had in 2001 the September 11 attacks on New York City, which in, in addition to the sexual predator stereotype, turned us all into uh, terrorist suspects. And then by 2005, with the explosion of the Cronulla riots, the Arab-Australian Muslim male, the Leb, had basically become a folk devil. He was a drug dealer, gangster, uh, you know, drive-by shooter. Then he was a sexual predator. Then he was a, um, a terrorist suspect and so on. And so that's the world that Banny Adam, the, the protagonist of this mm. book, is living in as a teenage boy. Now, w- one of the problems with the way Arab-Australian Muslim men are usually represented and constructed in the mainstream media and in the political language, in political rhetoric, is extremely simplistic. It's very one-dimensional. We we only play the part of the terrorist or the sexual predator or the gangster if you look at the historical representations of us, not just in Australia, but around the world. Mm. And so um, what I wanted to do in the LEBS is not give an alternative point of view which is necessarily positive i wanted to give a complex point of view which gives both the strengths and weaknesses in our community and what it meant to be a leb and so now to get to your point on the question of contradiction um banny has contradictory thoughts all the time because he is a complex individual mm. sometimes he can think in extremely homophobic misogynist violent ways and other times he can think in extremely liberal secular progressive ways uh, sometimes he's quoting great poetry but in other times he's using it to justify utterly absurd ideas like pedophilia between him and his uh you know his older teacher so it's a complex portrayal of what it means to be a leb um, and I, I, I like to make the point that his name Bani Adam in Arabic means child of Adam or humankind mm. and so I, I was very explicit in giving him that name because I wanted him to represent humanity That and, and what it means to be a human being is a contradictory experience Yeah, Bani's experience is very much circumscribed by the context you've just you've just talked about and there's a scene the day after September 11 uh, 2001 when Banny's school is called to assembly it's it's actually his year group are called to assembly and the principal offers a particularly closed-minded opportunity for the students to discuss the events that were even then being understood as history changing um, emerging from the discussion we hear perspectives about America's complicity in the violence that it receives, heard laments for the invisibility of the peoples of Palestine who died daily but are not memorialised. There's this point about how the school is flying its flag at half-mast and where is the sympathy, where is the empathy for people that die every day in conflict. This isn't a discussion that we hear broadly, if at all. 
How did you begin this for your writing and where do we go with this discussion? So look, you know, that would be one of the most uh, complex and difficult scenes to comprehend in the labs. And it happens very early on because the the book is starts around 1998. By about 30 pages in, you're in 2001. And it's the day of September 11. Now, for me growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney, uh, among a large Muslim community, the first narrative that I wanted to put forward, which is a shocking narrative to a lot of Australians, but, you know, we just have to get past the denial about the situation and actually speak openly about it. For young Muslim men that I grew up around, there was it was a day of celebration. And so I wanted to write about that openly and explicitly. I didn't want to sugarcoat how the lebs, the boys that I grew up around, were feeling the morning of 9-11 when they woke up they turned on their televisions and they saw those planes flying into the buildings. And so when they went to school, they did not in any way hide their emotions. They, they were going out of their way, in fact, to show the teachers who were primarily white that they were jubilant about the, the event, about the, the incident, about those crimes. Um, and so this is how it flips because I wanted to give both points of view. So on the one hand, there's this narrative about... Arab Muslim jubilation in the face of this tremendous act of terrorism. Um, and then on the other hand, what happens is the school principal, and this happened in my reality, this actually happened at Punchbowl Boys, and I write about it as a fictional account of what actually happened. The principal had put the flag half-mast, and then he called my year group in particular up to the library to talk it through with us because he felt that our group was the main group who were expressing a particular kind of sentiment which was distasteful, and he felt that he needed to talk it through. Now, this young boy in the book and in reality put up his hand, waited for a good hour to be allowed to speak, and finally he said that he felt there was a hypocrisy in the way in which the school expected us who were primarily who asked the student body who were primarily Arab Australian Muslim to mourn this event, but never once in the history of us being at that school um, did the school show any sympathy for the thousands and in some cases millions of people who are related to us and connected to us through our ancestry that had been slaughtered in the in this conflict of East and West. Mm. And so I wanted to give both points of view. I wanted to give the point of view in the book of the horrendous jubilation that those boys were expressing, but also some kind of context for why they were articulating um, the particular sentiment that they were expressing. Um, and, you know, I think that this is the hardest point and part for uh, many Australians to comprehend, that the events of 9-11 are not a one-sided account. They're not unjustified acts of hate and terror as the Bush administration was pushing. Mm. It had a lot to do with a long history of um, imperialism, colonialism, uh, illegal occupation and invasion of Middle Eastern and Muslim countries. Mm. And I want to give a balanced point of view of both in the book. Violence is an ever-present aspect of Banny's life at school, and, and what we've just been talking about there is really broadly put a situation where violence begat violence. He observes but doesn't engage as his friends do in, in this violence, and he constantly reflects on the things that he had either seen or heard about. And then on leaving school, he takes up boxing, seemingly to exert some control over the violence he feels could be turned on him. Do you feel, and, and probably engaging with our previous question as well, do you feel like violence is something we can ever come to terms with in our life? It's, it seems like Banny definitely struggles with that idea. 
I think that there is a kind of misconception about violence in the way it's articulated in the West. You know, I mean, it's the the the, I, the concept of nonviolence, um, which was adopted primarily through this kind of romanticization of Gandhi, mm. is that it's the only option in in every single factor even and and usually we we see politicians powerful white male politicians articulating an an ideology of nonviolence when you're protesting against the way they're behaving but but their behavior is extremely violent when you look at the way the United States Australia um, uh, engage with the Middle East, for example. It's sort of violence by proxy when they're they're sending troops. It's, it's like a, to me, it's hypocrisy. You mm. know, there's this like constant emphasis that when we react to crimes against us, we have to be nonviolent and we have mm. to follow the ways of Gandhi. But but the actual behaviour of the people who are telling us we have to behave that way is extremely violent. But here's here's the thing that if you actually look at the work of the the civil rights leaders, which Benny is obs- obsessed with and admires, you know. Gandhi, Martin Luther King, Malcolm X—they're the, they're the, the scholars that he's reading because he's a, he's a reader and he's a critical thinker. And the kind of putting aside the romantic version of who those people were, they actually lived extremely violent lives. That you know, like um, Gandhi never actually said run away from a fight. He, he in his work he was arguing nonviolence as the best way. But if it came down to being violent or being a coward, he said, "Be violent and 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 fight for your freedom." This is me referencing the work of uh, Norman Finkelstein, who writes about what Gandhi says. If anyone's interested in reading that that fantastic hundred-page book, um, but then again, again, of course, like Martin Luther King, it was a non-violent movement. But the amount of times that he ended up being arrested, and the amount of times that they had to confront a violent act and and make sure that it was a public display. Try to get your oppressor to act violently towards you to show the world just how horrendous the situation is, is a, is a fundamental part of the civil rights struggle. And so for me, the idea of violence is not a scary concept. And, uh, I, and, and for most Arab Australians that I know, most Arabs, because we come out of a inherently violent context, a context in which our families or us directly fled a particular kind of violence, the, the, the idea of violence does not scare us. Um, uh, generally speaking, I mean, that's a, a, a big uh, essentialism, mm. but still a fundamental principle that I wanted to explore in the Lebs. And so the characters in the Lebs are constantly playing out these fantasies of violence. And like I said earlier, Bani is a contradictory character. At times, he, he, he embraces these kinds of romantic ideas of Gandhi. And on, on the other hand, he, he actively pursues um, the ability to enact violence against other individuals. And he's constantly in the book, he's constantly on the cusp of committing very serious acts of violence. Mm. It's really interesting the scene you, where you portray Bunny in. He talks about his first boxing match, but then you actually portray him in a sparring match with an opponent that he, he doesn't know the name of, he's tried to meet the eye of, uh, can't even get a wink, a nod out of this guy. So he comes to know him as Vietnam because he's Vietnamese. And they spar, and you, it's really interesting the way you get into Banny's head, uh, the constant, it's, it's almost a, a philosophical approach to boxing as he tries to figure out his opponent's tactics and how he will counter them. And... No spoilers. Well, read how the read how the fight ends. But it's really interesting the way they acknowledge each other at the end. <laughs> and uh, the character we know as Vietnam, uh, we learn knows Banny as Lebanon, uh, and they they acknowledge each other despite the brutality of the confrontation. Well, firstly, I mean the idea between um, uh, uh, 
these two fighters is that the whole way through you're reading it from Benny's perspective and Benny's been calling him Vietnam the whole time. And so you're just reading it and thinking, oh, look at this little racist prick who's um, uh, calling this uh, fighter Vietnam just because he's from a Vietnamese background. And then in that last scene, uh, Vietnam taps Benny on the shoulder and says, uh, hey, Lebanon. And so there is a kind of... um, a community discourse that's going on between these two characters in the western suburbs of Sydney, which is not uncommon. That, that kind of rhetoric and that way of uh, us um, identifying with each other and, and um, othering each other in these kind of lower class, culturally diverse communities is part of the fabric and part of the beauty of western Sydney. Um, but what I wanted to say about that particular boxing sequence is because I was a boxer, because I was, the way I like to say it in my writing, in my public um, my public presentations is I was a fighter before I was a writer. Um, Because I was a boxer, I wanted to actually use the language of boxing in literature. And so it's it's probably one of the most technical scenes in the book where Banny in the fight, in the sparring session and also in the in the training sessions leading up to the fight um, is very expressive and gives a very detailed account of the of the world of boxing which i think for people who are not part of the boxing world but are readers and love reading will actually get a um a refreshing taste of what the boxing world can look like in literature written by someone who inhabits both the boxing world and the writing world would it be fair to say cuz you just described me i inhabit the reading world i definitely don't inhabit the boxing world that there is an element to to Banny's philosophy and perhaps a a philosophy of boxing that isn't so much about the violence as we've discussed it earlier, this brutality, this wearing down, but there is actually a sense that you are there for a purpose to win and uh, a a knockout blow is as good as brutalising someone through 10 rounds. Well, the the, the interesting thing about Banny Adam as a a boy is that he's marginalised. He's constantly under attack. Uh, actually from both ends because he's a leb and he's in this space, this school with barbed wires and cameras. He's constantly seeing himself and people like him in the media um, and and he's trying to escape. He tries to go into a, a white left community art space and they reject him too and they pigeonhole him as this dirty Arab, misogynist, homophobic Muslim. Mm. And so he's stuck in, in the middle of this uh, and he's trying, to, he's trying to find where he belongs. And so he pursues different avenues to empower himself, which again is not uncommon. Marginalized young men, particularly young men of color from minorities, will um, look for different avenues to feel empowered. And so throughout the whole book, the way he tries to distance himself in the beginning from the Punchbowl Boys, from the other lebs, is by reading and building some kind of intellectual alliance with the teachers. Um, and when it doesn't work for him, he turns to boxing, turns to fighting. And in the in the last section, he, he, he tries to turn into an artist. He tries to become a, um, a performer and a, and a, and a, um, a performance artist. And uh, I, I don't want to say too much about it, but what I will say is that he's constantly confronted by the obstacles that present themselves. And so he's constantly trying to build these tools and these skills as a way of escaping. Yeah. What Muhammad has just referred to there. I'm speaking with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. We're discussing the lebs, and he has referred to the ending, which is, quite frankly, jaw-dropping. I, I really loved it. It's, um, it's a book that builds pace, and I, I kind of... I, I was going so much quicker towards the end. Can't tell you that. Can't tell you. Read the book. Um, 
we've just been talking about Banny, uh, his boxing. I want to think broadly about not only his cohort of friends, but as he's a keen observer of, of everyone that he comes past, the men that he observes in his life, both within his, his group and, and others. And I want to ask, is the phrase, or is a phrase like to- toxic masculinity, which we hear a lot now, I know I wasn't hearing that phrase in the late 90s, early 2000s. Is it fair here? Because so many interactions in the Lebs are predicated by this perceived power imbalance between men and the women involved. And yet I, I thought the final scene actually turned that quite a bit on its head in the way that Banny plays that out and, and comes to a realisation. Um, I Look, in, in the context of the Me Too movement, in the context of all the language that and, and rhetoric and politics that we're seeing at the moment, I think terms like toxic masculinity are very topical and are coming up a lot. And, and you know, all this, there's all this kind of rhetoric that's being used to articulate the struggle. Look, the problem for me as a, as a, as a person who identifies as brown, as Arab, as, a, as an Arab, Muslim, Australian man, is that quite often... I can't escape particular constructions of masculinity. Um, you know, it's it's one of the historical issues with the way we construct the brown and black other, because there's a particular type of body. It's hairy. It's big. It's dark. Um, it's it's seen as strong when we think about uh, the, the 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 racist stereotyping of um, coloured men's genitalia. Again, it's seen as uh, hypersexual, hypermasculine. And so there is, for me, a danger in mixing up the language of masculinity with the language of patriarchy. Because for many, many men, particularly colored men and working class men, they can never actually escape the masculinity that's built into their bodies. And there shouldn't be any shame in that. We should be able, men and women and everyone else, to embrace that which is masculine and see it in a in a beautiful way separate from patriarchy so i actually don't use terms like hypermasculinity and toxic masculinity i use the term patriarchy and if we're going to talk about patriarchy in the book there's heaps of it it's gross the misogyny the sexism the patriarchal behavior of those young men that i grew up around is horrendous but there is i think also moments of beautiful masculinity and i try to give a kind of complex portrayal of both can that then contrast something like toxic masculinity? I mean, I, I, it strikes me when we think about the language of uh, masculinity or toxic masculinity, the language of Me Too, that one thing that has allowed these movements to cut through is that they've found phrasing and phraseology that actually appeals partly for its simplicity and its uh, ability to repeat. And I, um, I don't shy away from terms, but I completely take your point that uh, I, I don't shy away from these terms partly because they allow you to communicate broadly. I, I, I want to respond because I, I, I think what I think we, we agree fundamentally. The, the 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 basis of the point I'm trying to make is not about whether we are allowed to use terms like mm-hmm. toxic masculinity. I mean, we use whatever terms we need to move the struggle and the movement forward. But I think that quite often when we're having discussions about gender, race, class, sexuality, disability, we speak about them as separate phenomenon. We don't actually take into consideration how those socio-political identities intersect. And so for me as a critical thinker, as a writer, as a as a doctor in creative arts and in cultural theory, it's more important that we talk about how the um, the 
intersections of race, class, gender, and sexuality are constantly coming into conflict. And so I'm totally comfortable talking about masculinity, but not without taking into consideration how it actually impacts people across different race and class. Um, you know, dividing the world for me at the moment as a, just a male and female struggle neglects the way in which uh, a lot of women of color in Australia at the moment, writers who are women of color, are talking about the toxicness of white feminism on their struggle, which is a big discussion that's happening um, for the women of color at Sweatshop at the moment. Mm. Um, and so for us, it's more important that we're talking about all of these uh, phenomena and all of these identities together. And, you know, for me as an Arab Australian Muslim man from a working class background, in the Lebs, I try to portray an intersectional identity for the Leb. So, you know, at the, at, in one moment, he's exhibiting this guy, this guy who calls himself a Leb, is exhibiting some of the most horrendous homophobia and misogyny comprehension. Handable. And so people are just utterly disgusted and, and, and so many examples of people just can't read it anymore. But at the same time, those men are constantly under a racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic um, pressure that's coming from, from the, the dominant white culture. And so I think uh, the best way to read the book is through understand, understanding how those identities are working together and working at the same time. Now, I don't want to take us too far away from the areas that we've just uh, been talking about, but we are, I'm about to move us into a, probably my favourite part of the Lebs, uh, something that weaves throughout the novel, and that is Barney's reading. <laughs> uh, you can't come on Final Draft and not expect me to have a few questions about his reading life. He's inspired by his teacher, Mrs. Leila Hami, and eagerly devours her recommendations as well as his curriculum and beyond. If I think back to school, I kind of wonder about the reading lists that I, I received, I, you know, I, I accepted them. I loved reading at school, uh, but also the way they skewed towards this established canon of literature. Do you feel like Banny and his friends, if, if they perhaps chose to read with him, like, we get no impression that they took any love of reading. Do you think they're served in their daily lives by the books that they're prescribed or would have been prescribed in sort of the 90s curriculum? The, yes, the, the answer is no. Um, I think Banny is reading... And I, I, I go to great lengths to, to construct him as a reader. But fundamentally, what he's reading is not necessarily empowering for him. It's just to be really simplistic and blunt about it. It's primarily the language and the words of dead white men um, who, who have been dead for a very long time. And that, that's from like Shakespeare to Faulkner to Nabokov to Joyce. And of course, for me as a person who studied literature in university for 10 years, I devoured that literature and I began at a very young age. I was reading the canon, the, the, the European literary canon by the time I was in year seven. But he tries to use that language and the, use the words of those particular writers, which is peppered throughout the book, as a way of empowering himself and disconnecting himself from the other lebs. But what he finds is regardless of what kind of leb he is, regardless of how intellectual he is or how progressive he is or how open-minded he is or whatever kind of uh, hippie terms he can give himself, uh, there's something about him that is still fundamentally distasteful to the white artist that he, that he, that he tries to join at the end of, in the last part of the book. And so there is a phenomenon, an interesting phenomenon that's been going on at the moment that we saw start to unfold when Jackie Lambie attacked Yasmin Abdul-Majid because uh, this was on Q&A about a year ago, about two years ago. But what happened was um, we saw the first time 
are, are very clear evidence that it doesn't really matter what kind of a Muslim you are because those who know Yasmin Abdul Majid, who's, who have read her work and have seen her in, in, the, in the public sphere, but those who know her personally will, will say that she's one of the loveliest human beings you'll ever meet. And, and you know, she's dark-skinned and she wears a hijab. And Jackie Lambie still attacked her and, and you know, tried to humiliate her in front of the entire country. And so at a certain point, you, you come to realize that it's not the type of Muslim you are, that Islamophobia and xenophobia are real, that some people on this planet and in this country hate you not because of the way you're behaving, but because the religion you practice or the color of your skin happens to be wrong to them. And so um, what Benny starts to discover, I think, throughout the process is that he's kind of reading the wrong literature for his empowerment. And what's ironic is that whilst I push him towards the European canon in terms of who he's devouring and thinking critically about, my doctoral research, which I used to write this book, was like radical black literature. It was the work of Bell Hooks, who's an important African-American feminist and social activist and, and writer. Um, the work of Malcolm X, in, in particular, my, most of my PhD thesis was focused on the autobiography of Malcolm X and looking at how young Arab Australian Muslim men can um, adopt literary traditions from the African-American autobiographical canon for our autobiographical literature. And so whilst Banny is reading this kind of literature, the guy that wrote the book is reading a, a literature that looks to another part of the world and a different skin tone altogether. Mm. And what you get in the end is a kind of hybrid version of both in the book. So a lot of rhetoric that I adopt that I think passionate readers adopt is the way that literature opens up worlds to us. It allows us to explore beyond our ourself and, and perhaps realise, develop empathy Reading is so terribly important to Banny, and you've touched on the way his reading is influencing him. It's an escape. It's a link to his unknowable future as a writer. But he also faces the harsh reality that his peers share little interest in this passion. I think we've complicated the idea about whether that's a good or a bad thing right now. But do books always get the readers that they need? I know that the writing you just mentioned for your PhD thesis, I'm familiar with. I read Bell Hooks. I haven't read the writings of Malcolm X. Do, re- do books always get the readers they need? And what are your hopes for the readership of the libs? Well, let's talk about the idea of reading and writing firstly, mm-hmm. because the book itself for me as an Arab Australian Muslim man who, who, who has been a silenced minority for most of my life and uh, is the experience for a lot of other young Muslim men growing up in Australia um, is an act of self-determination. The, the, the ability to learn how to read and write, write a book, have it out there in the public is... uh, tied into a concept uh, coined by Bell Hooks, coming to voice, which is the act of moving from silence to speech as a revolutionary gesture. And so the work I've been doing with Sweatshop in the western suburbs of Sydney for the last 10 years has has always been about empowering young people from culturally diverse backgrounds Mm -hmm. to come to voice. Now, um, in the autobiography of Malcolm X, which 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 I've professed to be uh, some kind of expert in, though I'm not the definitive expert, but the, 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 the narrative itself, the book itself is uh, pigeonholed as a conversion narrative because the journey of Malcolm is, a, is one of transformation. He converts. 
um, his way of thinking and his way of living. And the subgenre of conversion narrative is education narrative mm-hmm. because he, his conversion comes through education. And so if you look at the way Bell Hooks talks about the work of Malcolm X, she says what we see in the autobiography of Malcolm X is how Malcolm is charting his intellectual development through reading. And so for me, the idea of reading is transformative um, because, and I, I want to quote Bell Hooks again here, the um, all steps towards freedom and justice in any culture are always dependent on mass-based literacy movements because degrees of literacy determine how people see what they see. And so in Banya's case, reading is part of the process of him coming to voice, becoming critically conscious and becoming empowered. And that ties in with an ancient tradition of human beings transforming their lives and the lives of people around them. And in some cases, transforming the world around them through literacy. Um, and, and, you know, Malcolm X is a, is a, is a very, modern example of that but I can go back even further the Prophet Muhammad his miracle is actually the miracle of literacy and the Quran um, is seen as his miracle because he was illiterate he couldn't read and write and then came down from the cave of Hera from the mountain blazing with this amazing poetry which for better or for worse radically transformed the world forever Mm. so this idea of the education narrative and the idea of the literacy narrative is built into the history of what it means for human beings to transform. Mm. And so I would, to answer your question now, I would say absolutely the, the power and the importance of reading, writing combined with critical thinking is essential to steps towards freedom and justice for any culture. And so in terms of the lebs, who do I want to read it? I really, I mean, you know, if I was going to be optimistic, I'd say everybody. I want every Australian to read it. But especially I want members of my own community to read it and to feel empowered by it, not just by the story and the narrative, but by the idea that they too have a story that is worthy of representation and that they too take it upon themselves to come to voice. Again, just back to the the idea, I think, that we problematize this idea of the transformative nature of, of literacy and reading, having a predominantly white canon um, that, as you've discussed, affects a readership that is not predominantly white. Can we also say, or can I say, I, I hope for a predominantly white readership of the Lebs, to read a book like this would have been so important for me at high school to see not just representation outside my own culture from 100, 200, 1,000 years ago or in another country, but to see it within my own city. I, I would hope that readership. I absolutely uh, agree and appreciate what you're saying. I think that uh, one of the biggest problems historically is not just that people of colour are constantly being pressured to read primarily white literature in school and university. And that's not a controversial thing to say. That's actually just the standard curriculum if we look at what kids generally have to study. Um, but uh, but also I think it's a way of reinforcing a narrow-minded way of looking at the world for people who would be identified as white because it means that they don't get to experience just how beautifully diverse this country is and this world is. And um, it reinforces what uh, important anthropologist from the University of Melbourne named Gus and Haj calls a fantasy of white supremacy. If all you're consuming as a white person or a person of color is white literature, then it reinforces the illusion that that whiteness is the superior position to be in um, throughout the world. And and we've seen the devastating consequences of that throughout the world. Are you just a little bit infected by the enthusiasm in this com- uh, conversation? 
I am speaking with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. We are... Well, we've just been challenging, I think, the uh, the cultural hegemony of whiteness in the literature that we consume. His book is The Lebs. It is extremely exciting. Uh, I, <laughs> I've i really enjoyed this, Michael. Thank, uh, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Look, Andrew, we've spoken a couple of times now, and this has been one of the most exciting and inspiring times. I really appreciate um, your enthusiasm, you know, because it's been, I think the work, it's it's confronting for a lot of readers. And the position, the last point I would like to make before, you know, we, we, we say bye is that I'm aware, you know, as a creative writer, I'm aware of some of the implications of the work that I've produced and some of the challenges and confrontation that people will face when they have to engage in this. But what I, what I would like to point out is that this is a mirror. This book is a mirror of my reality. It's the mirror of a lot of people's realities, particularly young people of color growing up in the western suburbs of Sydney. And that's something that I can't apologize for, something I'm very proud to say is uh, now part of Australian literature. That's it for this great conversation with Michael Muhammad Ahmed. Muhammad is the founder of Sweatshop, the Western Sydney Writers' Collective, and his latest novel is The Lebs. The Lebs is out now through Hachette. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you want to hear more Great Conversations from Final Draft, just hit subscribe in iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And this is the week to do it. This week we are uh, putting out for our subscribers a special treat, releasing a wealth of great content across the week. That's more Final Draft than you're ever going to get because I can't keep up this pace. Discover fantastic Australian writing delivered straight to your phone uh, every day. If you want to keep up with the latest books, writing and literary culture, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel and I will be back with more great conversations from Final Draft.